these are things that happen in the life of Christ. Okay, and we're going to do true or false. These are dealing with that last uh, that day on the cross, that Good Friday, and some things right around that whole period that we're going to be talking about. Jesus was hung on the cross for just three hours. False because it was more than three hours. Absolutely. Do you know about how long? It's around six hours, yeah, from about 9 a.m. to about 3 p.m. The only followers of Jesus who came to the cross were Mary and John. Who else, if you say false? No followers. Yeah, there was other ladies that came for sure. There was other ladies. None of the members of the Sanhedrin were inclined to show any kind of favor towards Jesus. Why do you say false? there's two of them that for sure get involved with his burial. Both the thieves crucified with Christ were antagonistic towards him at first. At first. That is true. That is true. They both, they both rail on him at the very beginning. And the one has a change of mind, change of heart. A number of the crowd at the cross ended up being sympathetic towards Jesus as he hung on the cross true. We'll see in Luke 23. There's a great earthquake when Jesus died. Or was it when he resurrected? Got 50-50. It is true. It happened then. Okay, The veil blocking the Holy of Holies was torn from bottom to top when Jesus died. Why is your saying false? Top to bottom. Okay, Which is an interesting point. A number of saints resurrected when Jesus resurrected. That is true. There was a resurrection of some people, or a resuscitation anyway, of a number of people that uh, who they were, how many there were, where'd they go, we don't know, but it happened. We'll talk about it, probably not get to it today. But here we go. If you're just joining us, we're talking Good Friday. Some of the things that happened during that time, the Last Supper took place, and then after the Last Supper, he's headed for the Garden of Gethsemane as his high priestly prayer. He prays for several hours in Gethsemane. He gets arrested. And then he begins a series of trials. We've been talking about the trials the last couple of weeks and just giving a little bit of an idea. The Jews held three different trials right away that evening before, um, before the sun rose. They basically got people together and they started holding the trials. And then right at dawn or shortly after dawn, they held their third. Excuse me, there was the two. But they held their third, which was supposed to be the trial that really counted. And uh, they, during this whole period of time, they violated a lot of their own rules. They weren't supposed to be in at night. Never pass a capital case the same day you try it, Jewish law. Never have the prisoner testify against himself. If there's false witnesses, immediately the case is thrown out. Now, can't touch the prisoner. A lot of things that happened. Never supposed to be in a private residence, but they did it uh, anyway. And so then what they did is uh, they go to Pilate right away around dawn, and when somewhere in this period, probably in that transit time or during that time right before the official dawn meeting when the Sanhedrin could meet in light hours and pass the sentence that was already predetermined, Peter does his denial around the same time. Judas does his uh, recanting, goes and throws the coins back. We've talked about those things. But Jesus ends up before Pilate. So right around the very early part of the day, they come to Pilate's quarters, uh, and he's come from Caesarea because of Passover, and he's staying in the Roman quarters. The Jews won't enter into the building because they don't want to be defiled, uh, even though they're, they have such a heinous uh, case going on. And so they brought him because they want him to declare Jesus guilty and capital punishment. 
Five times Pilate says he's found no fault in him. And yet the crowds are not persuaded. Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod even agrees. Even though they belittle and they mock and they, they beat Jesus, they, uh, they both agree, both these Roman, Roman appointed leaders, they both agree he's not guilty of any crime worthy of death. But the uh, Jews are insistent. And Pilate is going to try to persuade the Jews because of the political upheaval. And we've talked about this the last couple of weeks. Pilate was in a lot of trouble with uh, headquarters back in Rome. And the Jews kept on threatening him. So what happens is Pilate gives way. He wants to sway the crowd and uh, let them come to a conclusion that Jesus should be let off. So he tries a variety of things to placate them and to get Jesus released, he tries some things like, I'll give you a, a choice of a prisoner. So he brings you know, one of the more heinous prisoners up, and the crowd chooses Barabbas. They beat Jesus. And at the same time, Pilate's wife comes and says, don't do anything uh, evil against this man. And so there's a lot of intrigue going on behind the scenes. And um, Pilate keeps trying to get him released. And then you come to that scene where he brings Jesus out and he says, behold the man, he's been flogged and beaten. We talked about the, how, yeah, how evil that was. And the crowd responds with a couple statements. They say, if you free this man, you are no friend of Caesar's. That is really, really a shot at Pilate. That's a threat towards him. Because they know that if they report to Caesar that they're upset with Pilate one more time, he's going to end up in the Roman Siberia. And so they've got him basically right where they want him, and they force him to give uh, assent to the death of Christ. Now, during this time, they make two very damning statements about, to themselves where they say, we have no king but Caesar. That is, the, that is just absolutely phenomenal that the Jews who are in revolt and want to be free and, um, and want to have, in their mind, they're in revolt. They want somebody, a Messiah, to come and free them. They're saying, we're, gonna, we're acquiescing to Caesar. That is amazing. And then they make the comment, let his blood be upon our heads and that of our children. And so they're bringing this damnation and judgment from God upon them and their children, which will happen in the next uh, few decades. Their city will be destroyed. Many of their people, many of these very leaders will be crucified themselves and, uh, or their children who have become uh, up to the point of leadership in 30 years. And so Pilate agrees. And that's where we pick up in Luke 23. Pilate has agreed that Jesus should be crucified. So he turns him over to his soldiers. And the soldiers who are brutal men, they get their chance to beat him even further and to mock him. And that's when they beat that crown of thorns on him even more. That's when they, they, um, they roughhouse him. And then they lead him away for the crucifixion, which we'll pick up in Luke 23. Just a couple talking points about this whole incident of the trials. The illegalities are the emphasis in Scripture. A lot of illegalities that Jesus was innocent, he was not guilty, and they want the readers, you and me, to understand there is nothing in him because there is no sin in him. He is not being tried for sins that he has done, but he is being, going to be crucified for our sins. He did not resist. I think we under, underestimate this. Jesus, in this whole trial, he did not resist. And in Matthew 26, he said, I could have called thousands of angels if I wanted to. And so he makes it clear to his own disciples, I don't need your defense. I can resist this. I can stop this at any moment. But he doesn't. He's like that lamb led to the slaughter who just doesn't speak up. This is all voluntary. This is what Scripture wants us to understand. The innocent one, the holy one, voluntarily is giving himself, and he is as a lamb led to the slaughter, opening not his mouth, not defending himself in any great way. And then we also have the repeated phrase, 
the scriptures said, the scriptures were fulfilled. So all these incidences, as bad as they were, they were purposeful, that they wanted God, God's plan to be fulfilled. Jesus had to be crucified uh, in that form. The Romans had to get involved, which brings us to the thought that Jesus is in control. The Jews think they're in control. They're not. Pilate thinks he's in control. Jesus has that conversation. You have no power, but it's given of me. And so the scriptures would highlight these points his innocency, the illegalities, his voluntary substitutional sacrifice that he's made for us, which is important. So they lead him away. We pick up in Luke chapter 23 as the story continues and we read these words. Uh, this, what's that? Oh, wrong notes. You want to go and grab good ones? See if you can find good notes. Otherwise, we'll have to just bear and grin with it here this morning. Um, it could be on my computer, Life of Christ, 100 and... Some are okay? How many of you have bad notes that it's the same thing? You double paper, double side. Oh, man, I'm sorry. So you have 120 and 120. Hmm. There's a lot of stuff in between you're missing. You got the front and the first and last pages. Okay, let me get into the middle pages, and if she can't find them, good luck. Okay, you'll have just write. Write what you want, okay? Luke 23. Luke 23, let's jump down in verse 26. It says, As they led him away, they lay hold upon Simon the Cyrenian coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, says these com- Let me come to that in just a second. What's happening here, and just get a feel of this. Roman, um, by the way, in your notes I just had questions. Okay, you were going to fill all this in anyway. Just said, what did the Romans do? And then there was a big blank. So, uh, contrary to normal, I just left you lots of blanks this time. Roman practice with cruci- was crucifixions for the prisoners uh, was very, very specific. What they would do is they would have a route where it was going to be taken from wherever they take them from the prison to the place of execution, and they would assign Roman soldiers to guard each prisoner. There would be four in the assignment. So if there's three men, they have 12 soldiers, and then there would be one centurion over that 12 people. If there's four being executed, then you'd have 16 with one centurion over them. And the procession that they would make through the streets, they wanted to make a lot of noise. And so they'd either have a trumpeter or a town crier go ahead, and they would as, as well carry a sign that would indicate whatever the crime was. The Romans did this, and on the route they would take the most um, visible marketplace route out of the city typically. They didn't do side streets. The reason being is they wanted to make this a deterrent for crime. And they wanted to get the people to see how, you know, how in control they were. And so they did it for political reasons in order to sway the crowd. And so Jesus and the two thieves, they're going to be drugged through the town this way. And um, they're going to follow this normal pattern as they go out of Jerusalem and head towards an outside area called Golgotha. When they are doing this as well, the prisoners, they were trained in how to do the execution. Now, mind you, the prisoners, I'm sorry, the soldiers could care less about the safety, about the, uh, about the uh, um, comfort of the prisoners. They don't care. 
Okay, so this is going to be a rough house treatment of the prisoner because the prisoner is going to die anyway and these soldiers had absolutely no tie to them whatsoever. And so they would typically carry the cross beam of the cross that is the traditional western cross. They would carry the cross beam for it. Sometimes they say that they would carry the, whole, the, the entire piece, both arms. But typically it was for sure the cross beam. We don't know. Some instances in history they record where it's the cross beam. Some they carry the whole cross. Exactly which part of Jesus was carrying we're not 100% certain. But we do know this, that Jesus has been beaten by the flogging the cat of nine tails, which we described last week, many people died under the flogging. So by the time Jesus gets to this point of carrying this beam or dragging this beam, he is already, what word do you want to throw in there? He's exhausted. He's bleeding out. Um, His condition is really, really weak. So it's amazing that he survives even up to this point. And then remember, they've beaten him. And again, that cat of nine tails, 39 minus one stripes. His back, and I, I don't know how, how else to describe this, being blunt. His back is flayed. Okay, they, remember they put the stone or iron or sharp metal that at the end of those cat of nine tails so that when it went across the back, it would dig in under the flesh and pull back. So he's got muscle and skin already ripped off. Now you're putting, and then what did they put on his shoulders? Remember the, in mockery? The robe, and what would happen if you're, okay, okay, without being too descriptive, okay, so you're bleeding, you put this robe on, and then they rip it back off, okay, so understand some of this, the horror of this, and then now they make him carry, by dragging something or carrying on his shoulders, this, this wooden cross beam, which is rough hewn, by the way, I don't know, somebody asked the question, do we know if it's been used before, we don't know. We don't know at all. Thanks, guys. She must have found it. Um, so we don't know if this was if they recycled crosses. Remember when we were doing the the um, the class just a few weeks ago? We were talking about funerals and things, and I made comment that sometimes you can rent a casket. Yes, no. It sounds morbid, but you could rent a casket, and there's only so many times they can rent it out for somebody who wants a viewing, and then they would, they would um, embalm. And so they rent it out, but there's only so many times they can rent it out and be used according to state law. And so that sounds morbid, to have a rented casket. Well, we don't know about the cross in that same thing. We don't know if they would reuse them, how many nails there were in there from before, if this beam did have spikes from previous crucifixions. We don't know. We don't know some of that information, but we do know that Jesus, as he is going along, there's a crowd of people following him. And this is interesting that the crowd of people that, that are following him, there seems to be, in verse 27, the indication that out of the woman who are following, that in some of the company, that there is a lamentation going on, they're wailing. And he turns to them, and watch what he says to them. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for who? Who should they be concerned about? For yourselves and for who? Okay, now why is he saying that? What does he know that they're not aware of? He knows what's happening in roughly 30 years. Yeah, in 40 years. He knows what's ahead. Watch what he says. For the days are coming in which you shall say, blessed are those who are barren, the wombs that never bear, the paps that never gave suck. In other words, it's going to be so traumatic. You, 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 you don't want children. Because it's going to be such a horrible time in coming up. Then shall they begin to say on the mountains. In other words, what's the point here? People will look for death. Okay, because it's going to be so bad. 
For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in a dry tree? If they're doing it when, the, when there is this greenhouse effect of the Word of God, right now you're getting a lot. What are you going to do when all of a sudden it's a dry season and you don't have a lot of spiritual activity and blessings taking place? Because you have said, the nation has said, let his blood be upon our heads. And so he's talking about that coming judgment and he shows much more concern for them by saying, you, you know, I, I feel sorry for you people because your leaders have brought damnation to your nation. They have brought this judgment that's going to take place and people are going to seek death in that day, which historically we know how horrible. It was a, it was a, it was a massacre. It was a slaughter. It was a horrible time, the invasion that was done in 70 AD and the destruction of the Jews. And so Jesus is starting to move forward, but he's unable to carry the cross by himself. So they grab the guy by the name of Cyrus, of Simon of Cyrene, Cyrene is an area in North Africa. He's apparently a Jewish proselyte who is there because of, of Passover or a Jewish descent that's there. We read about him in Romans 16. There's a reference in Romans 16 when Paul says, greet this person, greet that person, greet that person. He mentions, greet Rufus and Alexander, who are the sons of Simon and uh, 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 that area of Cyrene. And so many conclude that this Simon of Cyrene is or becomes a believer and his children grow up to be influential in the church of Rome. And so when he became a believer, was he a believer? Was he one of those who was, uh, who was persuaded and was saying, come uh, Palm Sunday, you know, Hosanna, king in the highest, and one of those that vo- his voice was drowned out when they were crawling for crucify, crucify. And uh, we don't know. We don't know some of the data, but there seems to be the fact that whether if he wasn't a believer at this point, his experience of helping Jesus moved him to the point that he becomes a believer sometime shortly thereafter. And so what we know is this. There's legends, there are stories. Some of us grew up in churches that even have uh, days signifying where the ladies walked up to Jesus and they took cloths. One of them in particular gave him a drink of water is what the story goes. They took the cloth and they wiped his face and uh, there was a burning into the cloth. And this cloth has the face of Jesus. It's not the Shroud of Turin, but it's another cloth that historically was then worshipped that this showed the face of Jesus and it had the crown of thorns on it and it showed the spots where he was bleeding. In fact, history goes and the legends that go along with it that this cloth was used to, pre, to provide healing for a lot of people, especially in that first century that this woman took the cloth and she went and traveled even to the city of Rome and there a lot of Christians and others were healed by it and people were converted because of this cloth. There is nothing in Scripture not a not a iota of information given in the Bible about a woman giving Jesus a drink, about this cloth being done, but it has become so traditional in some churches, it's put on par with Scripture. And uh, so they made it. But, but again, some of those churches, by virtue of who they are and what they say, Scripture is not their most important authority. Tradition is as important. So if you run into that tradition or you hear about it, that's where it comes from, just so you're aware of it. It's not in scriptures. And I got to tell you, I heard this story so much, I thought it was in scripture. And I went looking for it on a couple occasions saying, where did this one phrase show up? And it doesn't. There's nothing in scriptures. But I had been convinced because I heard it so many times as a youngster uh, that it was true. Um, so the only one mentioned that as far as a person, it says that there's ladies following him that are his followers. And 
makes a comment about Simon and Cyrene, and that's it. We don't know anything else beyond that. Jesus gets to Golgotha. When he first arrives at Golgotha, they're going to lay down the cross as typical. They lay the beams down, they stretch out the men's arms, and um, the passion, the passion that Mel Gibson did a few years back, where it shows them tying the wrist and pulling the rope. Anybody remember these, these horrible scenes? in order to get the arm. It, the, they, from what we read in extra-biblical literature, that seems to be more of the pattern. Because typically people wouldn't lay their hand out, you know, voluntarily. And so um, they get there, and what they do is they would often give a narcotic, a drug. We read it's called vinegar mingled with gall. That's a narcotic. They give it to the prisoner about this time for a reason, to a little bit to dull some of the pain. Well, Jesus tasted and he spits it out. Why? It doesn't taste good? Okay. What, what do you think? Why would Jesus not want to have this? He's going to bear it all. He's going to bear it all with full awareness. And so it's, very, it's stated in Scripture for a reason that he did not take the narcotic or the painkiller. And there's a reason why he didn't take it. That would probably be our reason that we understand that he didn't want his senses to be dulled. He's hung on the cross. There's two malefactors or thieves, one on each side. Now, does that mean that the center cross was safe for Barabbas? Because Barabbas was supposed to be executed and got freed. We don't know exactly if that's the case, but what we do know is that the crosses, give you an idea, a little bit of the history about the crosses, this is the, the typical way that they would do this. Their crucifixions did not originate with the Romans, they originated with the Phoenicians. And it was designed in the ancient Near East, that's the A&E, considered to be the most horrible pain-filled death that they could devise. Because they, again, the governments wanted to use it as a deterrent for future revolution, uh, you name it. And so they adopted it. The Romans, the Romans um, even looked at it. Their historian Cicero made this comment about crucifixion. He said it's the most cruel and disgusting of punishments. So if even from there, and Cicero, by the way, was not only a historian, but he was in their Senate. So he was one of their chief officials who, uh, if the Senate, while he was in, in, uh, in seat, they approved the crucifixion, even though that they knew that this was a horrible means of death, the Romans would use this. The Romans used it to adopt it, but their laws forbade them to ever do this to a Roman citizen. It was such a bad execution. They couldn't do it to their own people. And so it was used on slaves. It was specified for slaves or foreigners who they have occupied their territory or as well the, uh, as they call barbarians, or the provincials who were in revolt. And so they reserved the crucifixion for just the lowest of low criminals because they thought it was such a disgusting way of being killed. Um, death usually came after a lengthy time. Usually people would hang on the cross two or three days maybe four days. Um, there are some accounts that they went up to six or seven days, but that was very rare. And so usually they would leave the person out and they would die of exposure, they would die of suffocation, they would die of just exhaustion, and so it's a horrible, horrible type of a situation. They have four types of crosses in the ancient Roman world. Okay? The style of the crosses vary and uh, there's different, different ones will be pictured. One was just a, basically a beam, and you were tied like this, or, or tied or nailed. And then the one we have that they call the T-cross, or the one that is the Western, the one that we most typically associate with Christ, or the X uh, that was done. Again, which one Jesus was hung on? Um, well, if you take all the splinters of the crosses and put them together, 
you know, that have been survived, and you get those little pieces of the cross, and you'd be especially blessed if you have a piece. If you put them all together, we wouldn't find out. We'd probably have the Empire State Building with all those slivers, you know, and all those claims that are made over the years. So we, we uh, traditionally, it's thought that it was the, the third one up there called the Western Cross, which again was used frequently by the Romans. Um, when they hung somebody, they wouldn't be hung up, you know, like 15 feet in the air. That's not the case. Usually the crosses were lower. Again, yeah, it's being practical about it. You hung them up, but they were a couple feet off the ground is basically it. They were usually, in Roman culture, they were hung up naked. Uh, Jews would never do naked as far as executions. Um, they, were, they were just a whole different mindset. Again, the cultures vary. The Romans and the Greeks, they would do exercise. They would do sports. Uh, in, in preparation. They would do that naked. The Jews would never do that. And so when the Jews did executions and they did things, which they did execute beyond stoning, they had their methods. But again, remember, the Romans took it away from the Jews. At this time period, um, do we know if he was naked or if he had a loincloth? We don't know for sure. But either way, even by Jewish culture, being just with a loincloth, that was pretty risque. Uh, by their culture. If they were following totally Roman method, he was totally nude when he was hung on the cross. Um, the spikes, the nails, they would go either through the wrist or through the hands. There are different, different uh, today, there are different reasons why some say it's the wrist, the hands, because of whether they could hold the body. The, again, Roman history, they talk about the hands, they talk about the wrists, and when they get, did the crucifixions, we don't know if they mean here or here, and so uh, some of that we can't be real specific about. The ankles were also nailed either together, overlapping, or on each side of the beam. However it was done, remember whoever's doing the nailing, they could care if they, they don't, they don't really care if they miss the, the spike, okay? If they nail the way I nail, okay, they would have missed the spike a few times. And so we don't know exactly if that even played into it. But as we mentioned, they would die from suffocation. And the reason the suffocation is this. Remember on the crosses, you usually see that bottom seat right here that is usually a little jut out right by the rump? There was a reason for that, so that when they'd get down, they could, they could kind of rest there because they need to do something. If you're hanging like this for an extended period of time, what do you need to do after a while? You need to breathe. And so your strength is trying to get your breath. So when they're, try, when they're hanging on the cross for this extended period of time, this is what usually killed the people was the exposure, the suffocation. Because after a while, what can't you do to breathe? You can't pull yourself up. To hasten up the death of those that Jesus was crucified with, what did they do? They broke the legs. For what reason? So they could no longer, via just their arms alone, but with their legs, they could no longer straighten out to get a breath. And he would bring on the suffocation quickly. But when they come to Jesus, they don't break his legs because he's already dead. Okay? And so the fulfillment of Scripture, that didn't happen. And so Jesus is on this cross. It's a rough cross. To breathe, you have to pull yourself up and down. His back is already bloodied, bruised, and battered. And so it's a horrible, horrible situation that he has, he has faced. The physical agony is on a, you know, when you go to the hospital and they say, give me a scale of 1 to 10, what's the pain? Okay, and we say 20, okay. Jesus is experiencing, you know, yeah, yeah, somebody said 100. He's experiencing way high, really high. And it's not because he's done anything wrong. He's doing that physical suffering for 
us. Okay? And so that, that enhances it. But his greatest pain on the cross is not the physical. What is his most agonizing cry? My, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is his greatest agony when he is separated from the Father. And so he's suffering physically, he's suffering more importantly spiritually. And so Jesus' clothes, you know this account, they're divided between the Roman executioners. This was normal. Your pay, what you walk away from as taking these prisoners, you get their garments and their clothes. Again, you've got to understand that the mindset in that day is survival mode. Most people didn't, they didn't have secondhand shops like we do. They don't have, you know, big closets like we do where they have multiple different, you know, ties, outfits, coats, dresses, slacks. They don't have that. And so if they could get their hands on something, you know, then they would have some type of garment, and if they want to keep the garment, that's fine, or they'd sell off the garment to somebody. And so this happens, the soldiers grab the garments, this is part of their pay, part of their benefit of executing, they get whatever the prisoner has in their possession. And so they come to the, sle- the seamless robe that Jesus is, and they don't want to rip it apart, so then they gamble for it. Again, we're, this is all about fulfilling Scripture. A detail that, you know, and, and here's the part that strikes me. People will create criticize this story and say Jesus manipulated everything to happen so that he could present himself and so he read in the Old Testament that this would happen, this would happen and he did it so that he could present himself and he was basically a magician, a huckster trying to, to fulfill these passages so that people would believe in him and he'd give this big hoax. How does Jesus control what the Roman soldiers do? How does Jesus control whether they come and break his legs? How does he control the fact that they pierce him and then water comes out? And all of this is fulfillment of Scripture. He is in control but because he's sovereign. He could not, a human being in the prisoner in this thing, could not manipulate all these little details unless they were really who they were, sovereign God. And so... The plaque on top of the cross is, an, is a statement that's given in all the different Gospels pointed out, or three of them pointed out, so it's got to be important. All of them pointed out, yes. All of them have that information about the plaque. Is it the same plaque that they carried through the streets? Some suggest it was. And the reason they suggest it is because the Jewish leaders had time to get back to Pilate and complain about it. And so, but, but again, he was on the cross for six hours. So they, they could have had time to do it either way. But the plaque reads, and it read in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. It read in three languages, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The Jewish leaders didn't like this sign because what did they want it to read? Do you remember what they asked Pilate to change? He said he was the king of the, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And Pilate's response is what? When they come back and complain about it. What I have written, I have written. Why does he say that? Why does Pilate say, no, I'm not changing it? Okay, put yourself in Pilate's shoes. Did he want this execution to take place? No, he's, his hand is forced. So where he can be stubborn, he's going to be stubborn. Now, none of us would ever think that way. Okay, just to show I can be stubborn. But he did this just to show his stubbornness, which ended up being something that was, that, you know, did present the truth in a, in a different way. And so, G, so Pilate stubbornly refused just to kind of tweak back towards the Jews themselves. 
Now, Jesus is on the cross for six hours. We, we uh, get the impression from scriptures that he's put there early morning hours, and they give us some of the uh, comments. They tell us about, you know, the sixth hour, the ninth hour. It all depends. It all depends on uh, who's rendering. The Jews had a different counting of the day, a number of the hours than the Romans did. So when you read what Mark says, you have to remember he's writing to Romans, so he's going to use the Roman reckoning. So it's about 9 o'clock that Jesus goes on the cross, and he's going to hang there until around six, uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, so a total of about 6 hours. During that time, he says seven different statements, and those statements are well documented, so we know that they've said it. Around the noon, this passages say, in Matthew, it says there's a darkness that overcomes the land from noon until 3 o'clock. Now, some have gone and said, okay, we're going to see if there was some type of, um, you know, some type of conjunction of something happening around that same time that it would block out the sun. I'm going to just be very subtle in my mind that this was a supernatural darkness, that God was just showing his, his um, how do I want to put this? God closed his eyes, if you would, to Jesus Christ and Jesus has to call, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's a darkness that covers the land. It is a total expression of, of God's and Christ's separation at this point. Now, that does, and I have no problem with that because I think there's a supernatural, and I believe it's totally supernatural, ripping of the veil in the temple. And the point that I did in the true and false was for you to catch the veil rips from top to bottom, okay? There's, there's no people that are crawling up that really high, it's 60 foot high veil, and tearing it from top to bottom. Okay, this is a supernatural act. And so, and the earthquake, and the people coming out of the graves, this is all supernatural. So I have no problem believing that there was a supernatural form of darkness that covered the land, and it was God's sorrow, it was God's separation from the sun, just picturing, you know, what Jesus was bearing for us during that period of time. Uh, <clears throat> again, when we did one of our ministries, there was a lady from our community who visited at one of our reenactments, and she was very, very upset that we used the phrase that the father turned his back on the son in the monologue that we used. And her, con- her contention was Jesus and God were never separated, that Jesus and God were always in love, and that's a display of how we should always be in love. I have no problem with saying Jesus and God are always in love. Would you believe that too? Okay. But were- was there a moment of separation? That they, absolutely, because Jesus calls out, my God, my God. Yeah, and so it's a very clear that there is a separation. And how that worked in the Trinity, I don't know how to explain that other than it did. So there's different groups at the cross. I found this very interesting just for my background study and just doing this, is the different people who are there, some ridicule, some, it seems like there's a change of attitude about, among some of the crowd that's there at, during the course of time. You got the Jewish leaders. We read about them in Luke 23. You can see it in the passage right here in front of you in verse 35 as it goes on. The people stood there. The rulers also derided him saying he saved others let him save himself. If he's the the chosen one. So you have the Jewish leaders with some of the crowd that they are mocking Jesus during the time. You've got the Roman soldiers who at the same time, they're going to make some, some mocking, mocking statements because verse 36, the soldiers also mock, coming to him, offering vinegar, if you be the king of the Jews, save yourself. And so they've, the Roman soldiers have picked this up. Okay, some of this uh, harping on Jesus. You, uh, you know, they say, both groups say, save yourself. Isn't it a fact he could have done that any moment he wanted to? 
Absolutely, but he's still hung there. Okay, the two thieves on the cross, their story is told in this section of Scripture, uh, one, of their, one of their passages of Scriptures. Now in this one, it says in verse 39 that one of the malefactors that hanged with him railed on him. And in Luke's account, we only hear of one of them mocking Jesus. However, according to Matthew 27 and Mark 15, it says they that were crucified with him reviled him. So initially they both revile him. There's a change that takes place in the one. What causes the change? in that one's attitude. Where at first he's mocking Jesus, but now we read in Luke 23, later on in the course of these hours on the cross, when the one continues to, uh, to uh, rag on Jesus, the other one becomes defensive. So apparently there's a change in heart, change in attitude in the one who doesn't have anybody coming up and giving him a gospel tract. What is it that influences that one malefactor, that criminal, to have a change of attitude towards Jesus? Okay, what's that? Could be the darkness. It could be these, what's happening around. It could be the fact, now we don't know this. Could these thieves have heard of Jesus before? I, okay, does everybody in Jerusalem, what, what did the leader say before? How many people go after him? They said the whole world is going after him. So a lot of Jesus, his, his reputation, so these two guys could have heard of Jesus before. They could have been following the internet to find out exactly what's going on and keeping up with the news. And so they would have heard some things. They get on the cross, and what is Jesus doing to the people who are crucifying him? What is he saying? What's his first cry? Father, for, forgive them. What an attitude. What an attitude change. And his compassion, his, re, his rejection of the narcotic, his submissive spirit, just the demeanor of Jesus Christ. The darkness comes upon. Jesus is crying about his spirit. He's not crying and haranguing against the people. He's not saying, I'm innocent. He's not saying, you guys are going to regret this. He never does the, the norm. What he does is just shows a compassion towards other people through this whole time, a concern for his walk with the Lord. And so I think all of that combined makes a tremendous impact upon the man who's on the one side. And so you all know what happens. He defends Jesus Christ. And, um, and then Jesus says to him that, that fabulous statement, today you will... Yeah, and so there's others there at the cross. We read in Scripture there are some people there who are sympathetic to Jesus, who are gathered at the foot of the cross, who are gathered here at the top of Golgotha. We know that there's Mary and the Apostle John, okay? Because Jesus says, behold your mother and behold your son. By the way, I'm, I'm probably not going to get there, so I'll just shoot this out. I won't get to the notes probably. Why did he pick John? Well, he knew John. He's close to him. He's one of the inner three. John is also his cousin. Okay? And one of the ladies who keeps showing up at the cross and at the tomb is Mary's sister. Okay? We'll give that information to you a bit later. She's the wife of Cleopas. Uh, I'm sorry, the wife of Zebedee. And um, she is, so she, the two sisters seem to be like this, following Jesus at the cross and then they, the one goes to the tomb. So part of the closeness could be that, that their moms are real close, and then on top of it, their cousins, and he knows that James and John, they have the wherewithal, right? 
the, uh, for provisions because they have a family business compared to the others. And so John is a very likely source. John could be very close to Mary because Mary and her sister are very close. The moms are very close. So some of that plays into it that makes perfect sense at this time that John would be there because his mom is saying, I'm going to the cross. And so James John would have that influence of their mother as well who she wants to be there for support for her, her close sister. And then it says this, all the people that came together at that site, and this is an interesting phrase. We read in, in verse 48, all the people that came together to the site, beholding the things were done, smote their breast and returned. Okay. Now some scholars are saying, that some of them, they did this in the form of just like, okay, they doffed their hat out of respect, but they were, have been ridiculing. Some say they're smiting their breasts, that some of these people are smiting their breasts because that was a Jewish sign of anguish, anguish, repentance. Okay, remember the, the publican who is praying, he says, Father, forgive me. Okay, when the Pharisee is saying, thank you that I'm not like that one, and the publicans beats his breast. It's the same concept. That is, that is a, a form of something that they would do that just, you know, th- that they could just show an outward, an outward expression of regret, repentance, remorse, um, you know, grieving. So, the in- so many of our Bible scholars, they say, well, maybe what's happening is that some of these people, the general public who have come, they, they were kind of just in the mix of things, and they got caught up maybe at the crucify him, crucify him, and got caught up with the crowd. But all of a sudden, there's many of these general public, was there a change of heart taking place as they saw him suffering, as they saw the supernatural darkness? Could these be some of the general public who had benefited from his ministry? Because remember, a lot of people got healed. Maybe some of them experienced family healings. Maybe they had some people that they knew, the demons were cast out. Maybe they ate of the loaves of fish that he had done, and they had been impressed. Maybe they were part of the crowd on Sunday that said, Hail, 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 King of the Jews, but they got caught up by the political diatribe and the leaders. And, you know, by the way, crowds back in those days, not today, but back in those days, crowds could be fickle. Okay? It's not that way in America. We're never fickle. Poles never go this way and that way, okay? But they could have all of a sudden gone, wait a minute, we, we, we shouldn't have, we should have, or, or maybe they were the part of the crowd that didn't get into Pilate's courtyard, and they, they were like, no, this is, a, this is a shame, this is bad. And so there seems to be, if there's a number of people who have a change of heart, change of mind, or at least they're broken spirit about. Now, Luke also says there's acquaintances and women that followed him. Who does this all involve? Some of his disciples. We don't know how many who it was that followed, but we do know about the ladies, okay? And we also know that some of the Sanhedrin were there. We know of two members of the Sanhedrin that are sympathetic to Jesus, and they are there at the scene of the cross, especially at the end of it. Do you remember who they are? Joseph of... Yeah, okay. Joseph of Arimathea, who is called in Scripture a counselor. That is, he's a lawyer, he is one who is, he is devoted to the law. He understands Jewish law, okay? And he's a wealthy man. He's the Joseph of Arimathea that takes the body down, takes the body and puts it where? In his tomb, a borrowed tomb again. And so he is helped by another fellow that is stated in Scripture that shows up, helps take the body down and get it to the tomb and does the initial, the initial burial wrapping that the ladies will complete after Sabbath day. 
Nicodemus is the other one that's mentioned. In John chapter 19 it says that Nicodemus, and look at the passage, he brought the mixture of the myrrh and aloes. So he brought the initial um, uh, embalming um, you know, grave, grave material that they would need. And again, the ladies are going to complete it. But they got to get this body down. It's 3 o'clock. They got to get the body down. They got to get it wrapped up. They got to get it put into the tomb before we get to sundown. Okay, they got to hurry this thing up because of the Jewish laws. They got to get them down before the end of the day. And so uh, it, would be, it would take time for the soldiers to go through to break the legs, the men to die, the soldiers to remove the body off the cross, them to get it moved, taken away, put in the tomb, wrapped up, and done those ways. Then it says there's some Galilean ladies. And it specifically says in Luke 23, Galilean women who follow him, and they follow from the cross to the tomb. They know where the tomb is. And so they're able to return on Sunday morning. The ladies that are mentioned are Mary Magdalene is there. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, beyond Mary, the mother of Jesus. But Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, who's the sister okay, of, uh, of, of uh, Jesus, who has the same, elsewhere she's called Salome in other passages. And so you have Joanna, you have a variety of different ladies who are there. So you have a mixed crowd of supporters and ridiculers taking place there at the cross. Jesus makes several statements at the cross. And those statements are such that they are impacting. We'll pick up next week with it. But let me just mention that during, right around the time that he dies, two major events take place. That that Matthew wants, and only Matthew records these. Okay, the only one who records them is Matthew. Matthew, who is writing to which group of people? To remember, Matthew writes to the Jews. He, he, and he alone records that all of a sudden, when Jesus dies, there's a great earthquake, and the veil is rent from top to bottom. Now, some say, well, that's just the circumstance with an earthquake. That veil is huge. That veil is 60 feet by 30 feet. The, the information we have from historical writings is the veil would take up to 180 people to move this veil. It was a hand's breadth wide, they say, which is around four or five inches wide for a fabric. If that's the case, this is more like not just a veil or a curtain. This is like a, a, yeah, a huge rug, like a wall. Okay, for it to be ripped, supernatural, from top to bottom. And then there's the other thing that the Jews are told about, and only the Jews. There's an earthquake, bodies then, tombs are opened by the earthquake, and the bodies come out on Sunday. It specifically says the bodies come out on Sunday, and they visit people in Jerusalem. Okay, again, two things that are added without a whole lot of detail, but written to the Jews to make sure the Jews understand this was the hand of God on this whole scene. We'll pick up from there next week, okay? Thanks.